Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. On this episode, we address the critical issues surrounding open source development and ongoing lifecycle management. Join us as we jump on our soapbox for this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every, ep- well, almost every episode is my Thunderbolt-friendly co-host, Brandon Johnson. How are you doing today, buddy? Doing good. Good to be back. And it's funny you say Thunderbolt-friendly uh, co-host. I was just counting how many <laughs> devices I have that are Thunderbolt-capable, and it's uh, a lot. <laughs> well, we're we're still planning the intervention for you and all your devices, but that's still in the planning process. But we definitely missed you in the last episode. Michael did an awesome job hanging out with me, but uh, your your presence was definitely missed. Great, yeah. I uh, sorry to miss it. Just work always, as always, takes priority. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new Managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With Managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc., and together they've ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of the Mongo database as they become available. As a listener of the Pseudo Show podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN Mongo. Need more than just a database? You can use your $100 credit to try out all the amazing services DigitalOcean has to offer. Again, go to do.co slash DLN Mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Today's episode of the Pseudo Show is brought to you by none other than Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com DLN to check out their amazing service. You may or may not know that websites and apps are under attack every day, and because of this, security breaches occur. When you reuse the same passwords across multiple websites, hackers thank you because they can easily access your email, banks, and other important accounts. This is why security experts recommend that you use a different randomly generated password for every online account. With Bitwarden, you can create these randomly generated passwords that are different for every site you visit. And the best part is Bitwarden will manage all of this for you so you don't have to. Bitwarden works across your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even on the command line. When you make the smart move and go check out bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to access all that Bitwarden has to offer with the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 per year. That's right, $10 per year. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and thank you, Bitwarden, for sponsoring the pseudo show and the entire Destination Linux network. Yeah, this topic, we've been beating around the bush on this topic for quite yeah, a long time. Yeah, we definitely have. Yeah, we're going to talk about today. So 
I'm going to har- I've been harping on this, right? Since the podcast began, people may have even seen me yell on Twitter into the ether. <laughs> like I keep saying, I've been harping on this since the beginning of the podcast that the open source community needs to stop thinking that free and open source software isn't free as in free beer. It, you know, it's of course meant to be as Stallman always said, it was meant to be free as in freedom, like freedom of speech. You know, it's freedom to review the code, modify the code. And, you know, many developers are donating their time purely because they have a, an itch to scratch or they just purely enjoy it. But then, of course, they're doing this in their day jobs or they just want to do it. But, you know, they start getting burned out or they get criticized. And like when they get criticized, they go, why am I doing this? Eh, I'm not making any money out this. So first I want to tackle the the language problem. I mean, I, for me, language matters. The English language is terrible at expressing things like, because there are so many words that overlap that mean completely different things. Free, free means, could mean free beer or I am a free individual that lives in the United States. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, but the problem is, is when people hear free, they don't think freedom. They think I'm going to get a free beer today. <laughs> they- <laughs> people throw around the term OSS, open source software and FOSS software, which is kind of redundant because FOSS is free and open source software. And, and those two are typically used interchangeably. And I think that's part of the problem is we just throw out these acronyms and we get close enough. You know, like you said, the, the English language is incredibly unprecise when it comes to, I, I mean, you look at some of the different languages and this, this took an interesting turn early, but you look at different languages and I mean, there's, there's dozens of different words, I think, in the Greek language to describe snow, whereas in the U.S. we have snow. That's pretty much it. So, I mean, the English language is imprecise to start with. And, and when you look at free and open source software versus open source software, it, they mean two different things. Yeah. So, well, in turn, for me, free software, I've never liked the term. I, I've never liked it. Because, again, you, when you hear free software, you immediately go to thinking, I'm getting free software, as in I don't have to pay for it. Free samples at the grocery store. Yeah. So... I've always preferred the term open source software because there's no misinterpretation there. There's no expectation that you're getting something for free. All that's implied is the source is available. That's it. And that's all that's all you're obligated to do. You're not obligated to ship pre-compiled binaries with your project. You're only obligated if you're using an open source or free software license to provide the source code. That's it. And it's just been, but with still with open source, I still don't, I still, I don't have the association with free with open source because there's so many open source solutions out there that have a pay model. GitLab immediately comes to mind. Like the vast majority of the code is open source. Or there's like some other pay models, like for free software, like whether that's the Red Hat model or more of like the tip jar model, like, I don't even want to call it that. I, I think that's a poor way of describing what elementary OS is doing, like the donation button or, or, or whatever. I actually think that it, it's a 
pay what you want type thing, not a donation. I personally do not use elementary OS, but I like what they're doing. I've donated. Uh, so in a way, I guess it's a donate. Well, what elementary OS has done is they've curated an application store like we're so used to seeing in iOS and and even Windows and even the Linux desktop has, has adopted the application store model. But El- elementary OS has taken this a step further. We're not unaccustomed to hitting the download app and paying 99 cents uh, to download some stupid clone of of Candy Crush on our on our mobile devices. And so what elementary OS has done is they've created a curated open source software application store built into their operating system. And when you go to, to install the app, what it does is it asks, hey, would you like to send the developer money? And to respect the the free as in beer approach to to a lot of our open source software, you can actually hit zero dollars and and download the application anyway. But at upgrade times or at, at download time, it'll actually ask, do you want to send the developer a donation? And you can actually send a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever the case may be, depending on the value that you assign to that application. And I remember when this came out a number, uh, several years ago, they got so much flack. They went to a couple of different podcasts. They wrote blogs about why are you coming after us? We're just enabling people to donate to the developers that, like you said, are scratching an itch. Yeah. This is like the thing that I'm like very passionate about. I mean, like I think what, what elementary did was fantastic. This is a, obviously a topic I'm very passionate about. Like what elementary did was fantastic. And like the flack that they got, I thought was totally unfounded. It was, it was quite frankly crap. And Tide Lift, we've had them on the show in the past, did a study not too long ago as a survey, how many developers are pulling out of maintaining their software. They're like, we're done. And it's about well over 50%. My jaw hit the floor. Um, And one of the top reasons is because they need to get paid. Like they're doing this. Yeah, they like doing this but they can't justify it anymore. So, and I think that's, again, a, a, one of the symptoms of our of the problem where we have an open source is there's this perception of, of enti- you know, that I'm entitled to the software for free, which I don't appreciate. I, someone once asked me, are you a materialist? <laughs> I'm like, are you joking? This is America. That's one of the symptoms and of of that entitlement, like in the end user space, I actually think it's uh, it's not just a problem in the end user space. Like we're show focused on enterprise class open source, and when I first think of this problem of not being not getting uh, money in the hands of developers or the companies behind the projects, I immediately these days think about MongoDB and Elasticsearch. These two companies created some fantastic software, probably some of the best software in the industry, but they felt because of market pressures, because uh, they weren't getting money back from Amazon, because Amazon was just taking their stuff, rehosting it and selling it as a product themselves. And for both products, for both Mongo and Elastic and Mongo and both and Elastic both felt, hey, we gotta we gotta change something because otherwise we're not going to be in business in a few years. So they changed their license, which was very controversial. But I understand why they did it. 
I mean, if I was in their shoes, I might have done the same thing, even though it was it was against my personal philosophy. I probably would have said, I have no choice. I have to I have to change the license. I can't let Amazon just repackage my software and sell it at for nothing, essentially. And I can't compete with with uh, you can't compete. And so. This is why I, I'm very, very passionate about this because I, I, I'm start. I don't want to lose great software like Mongo and Elastic just because people don't want to pay for it. People's time is valuable. When MongoDB came out with their adjusted licensing, I my knee jerk reaction and my stand for some time was blatantly and unequivocally opposed. It went against the spirit of open source. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be free. It's supposed to be source available. And Mongo and then Elasticsearch not long after changed that. But the more I look at the landscape, the more the more vulnerabilities that come out, the more developers that just walk away, not just from a project, not just from a hobby, but you're talking about high-profile projects, libraries that the entire internet is dependent upon. And we've got developers quitting left and right. Why? Because the atmosphere sucks, if I'm being completely blunt. So looking at Mongo and and what they did, like you said, Brandon, I don't know that I can blame them. And and I don't know that if I managed a similar project with similar, I I mean, neither of us are, are DBAs, but I think it stands for itself that Mongo has some very, very strong differentiators between MongoDB and their their competitors. And so that's not something that the internet and the applications that rely on Mongo can afford to lose. And yet you're absolutely right. Amazon didn't send any money upstream, didn't send I don't even think that they were sending bug fixes or new features. You look at Asusa or Red Hat or any of the companies that fall into that same bucket and Sure, they create products around the upstream projects, but it is a stream. And it's a stream that code goes both directions. Red Hat and SUSE both pride themselves on having this, this almost ambassador-like relationship between the upstream projects, whether that's Fedora or the kernel project or Kubernetes, and their downstream products. So the upstream projects benefit from the community, from the from the security testing, from the, I mean, you want to stress test an application, give it to a big enterprise to run. And yet Amazon wasn't doing that with MongoDB. So if I were the project manager in the same position, I I can't say that I make a different choice. I, I can't fault them for what they did. I mean, like everyone's knee-jerk reaction now, you know, is immediately say, oh, just fork it. I'm like, it, that, that's not that simple. I, I tweeted. I, I, I sent out a tweet. This is a few <laughs> weeks ago. Go look for it. It didn't go anywhere. A few people liked it, but whatever. So I, I'm going to just read exactly what I said, and this is in reaction to the audacity it stuff that's come up. Though I understand the knee jerk reaction to call for a fork of at get audacity. Nearly everyone I've seen call for it has likely never forked a project. Taking on someone else's technical debt, it's not just exhausting, it's expensive. If you call for a fork, will you put your money where your mouth is and support the developers of fork it? Like if you, I can't say this enough. Like if you're going to call for a fork, donate to the project, donate your time. I forked 
two open source projects. Two. I will never do it again. It is because, like I said in that tweet, you are inheriting someone else's technical debt and you get to live with those pieces if when you fork a project. And understanding that technical debt takes time, takes more resources than and personal money than I ever want to talk about when it comes to those projects. Like one of the projects, I did make some money off of it. Absolutely. I got paid to to change and make this project better. And I and then I of course abandoned it. The reason why I abandoned it though later on is because I wasn't getting paid to work on it anymore. And two, the technical debt to maintain the project to overcome that technical debt was it would have taken me several years just to get the code up to snuff and by the time i got it where where it needed to be i would have had to basically go all the way back and make sure that all the the software all the libraries it's using are are still available still up to date not something you want to take on unless you are willing to take on that debt I thought about this as, as we were prepping. And even if you take out, shall we call it a poor community image that, uh, that follows uh, Muse and, and the Audacity project, set that scenario aside because there, there's so much more at play there than just the code. So let's take a project that, that scratches an itch or that fixes a need that you have, maybe for your business, maybe for your, maybe for your home network, and it's been abandoned. The, you can't get a hold of the developers. Let's take a, a cleaner use case like that and, and break it down. What, what exactly are we talking about doing? Well, you've got a fork of repository. And then last episode, we talked to Rick Hall, who's started not one, but multiple businesses. That's really the mindset you have to take. In reality, it's worse because you're not starting something from scratch. But you have to be the project manager. You have to be the chief marketer. You have to be the chief trainer. You have to be the technical writer. You have to be the developer. You have to be the tester. You have to be the security auditor. You have to be all of those things unless you're lucky enough to have... I mean, I think most open source projects, at least in the consumer space, have maybe two, if you're lucky, three developers that actively work on it. Everything else, is, if you're lucky, is drive-bys. Oh, hey, I found this bug. You, you might look at this part of the code and they, if you're lucky, they drop a pull request and they're off into the ether. And that's the last you ever hear of them. So if you're lucky, you get two or three developers. And if you, if you think about it, unless you're all just independently wealthy, you're doing this part-time and not even part-time. It, it's, it's a weekend warrior kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know about you, Brandon, but we've got four kids, a demanding job, and podcasting is, <laughs> is, is almost a part-time job as it is. I don't have times for many hobbies. As a hobby. If it's important enough, you make the time. Well, you have four kids. I only have one. But still, it's, uh, finding time to do it is impossible. It's a hobby. Yeah, but you need to, like, if I can make money off my hobby, great. But one of the things I want to make sure, I, I have another point coming up, but I don't want the perception to be that open source development is someone's hobby. <laughs> <laughs> True. And, and we'll, we'll cover that here in a minute. But I, I, wanted to, I wanted to kind of round out my point that take your hobbies, something that you're excited about, something that you 
you're eager to work on that you make the time, whether that's letting the family go to sleep and you start coding at 11 o'clock at night. And then some random person out on the internet tears up your project on Twitter or posts just completely useless comments in, in your project telling you how your code is garbage and how they're, they just, it's terrible. They just want to fork it and just move on with their lives. How much time are you going to dedicate to that moving forward? Arguably, probably none. You're probably going to do like 50 plus percent of developers in these kinds of, of development situations. You're just going to wash your hands of it and walk away. Well, quite frankly, I have a thick skin. I just ignore them. Whatever. I don't care. And like, because the thing is, though, is like, I, like I said in that tweet, people who call for forks likely have never forked a project in their life. And, and I'm pretty sure that people that go trolling around in projects say, I'm just going to go fork your project, aren't going to actually do it. They might fork it and then do nothing with it. So it's like, oh, what was the point? <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, what was the point in irritating me? But the thing is, I was like, I don't want the perception to be it's a hobby, right? Because it's not. I mean, some of the biggest, the best professional software in the industry is open source. LibreOffice, Krita, which is like one of the top drawing applications, not just for hobby, not just for amateurs. I mean, huge organizations use Krita. Uh, Caden Life, yes. Krita is one of those open source projects that has found such a passionate following that its user base and its feature set are at, at par, if not if not even better than, say, Adobe Photoshop. It's more in the area of Adobe Illustrator. Yeah, Illustrator. And uh, Corel Draw. And right. It, but like Krita is like top notch in, it, in its class. Like it is. One of the best pieces of software, but like that's one of those probably one of those examples where things are working, right? You have a very professional project. Developers are, are like you got to be full time on that. They have to be to make this as well as it is. If they if they aren't, like they're magic programmers, <laughs> <laughs> the, like the best programmers out there. Like they're part time and doing this for free. But I believe. If I'm wrong, community, correct me. But I believe Krita is one of those projects that's it's getting well-funded. Developers are getting paid. The developers, so all the developers that are working on are getting, you know, getting paid at least enough to live. And the same goes for like OBS. I know OBS is another one of those projects that was originally filling an, a, a niche of, of game streamers. Like that was my impression of, has always been my impression of OBS. But now it's like it's being funded by well, by Twitch, by other organizations that heavily utilize it in their workflow. Like, quite frankly, it's a very professional, very well done piece of software. Quite frankly, now that I'm getting into creating content, video content, I couldn't imagine using anything else because it's it. it for streaming and creating that or creating that kind of video content, nothing can match it in the open source world. I'm sure there's some proprietary software that I have never seen before that does a really good job as well. But OBS is top notch in its class. You can go pick up OBS for free. But like one of the things that I would love to do, and like one of the things I'm just know it's not clear is like I want to be able to buy it. 
like donate to the project. And that's not clear on how to do that. And same with every piece of software I use. I, I actually said, responded to a to a tweet on on Twitter, said if you could give one thousand dollars to to any open source project, which open source project would it be? Now, this was a tough one. Very tough. I use tons of open source software. I use GNOME, the you know, the overall Fedora project, it go into individual piece of software, LibreOffice, Evolution. At LibreOffice, I donate about a what it costs to pay for a Microsoft Office with a yearly subscription every year. So I think it's $100 a year. But the anyway, the piece of software that I said uh, was Evolution. I would donate $1,000 to that project. The reason why is I've used it since 2003, I believe. And I've gotten more than $1,000 of use out of that solution. It, it is, I use it for work. I use it for personal email. I use it all the time. And it's the most mature project if you use Exchange uh, in terms of calendaring. I think in terms of Linux calendaring, it's the best because it actually has a day view, unlike uh, Gnome Calendar. But you're definitely in the minority, though, Brandon. I mean, your approach is brilliant. If you'd pay $99 a year to Microsoft for, for Office 365, why not take that money and donate it to an open source project that's arguably on its way to being a better platform? When, I mean, even imagine what open source could do if you took a project like Joplin, which is a, a note-taking app. It, it competes along with OneNote and and Evernote, and Evernote got really expensive by the time I quit using it. I think it was like 60 bucks a year or something. I mean, don't get me wrong, I used the heck out of it, but 60 bucks a year for my note-taking app? Even take half of that and apply it to Joplin, and imagine what the developers could do with that, with that money, how much more time they could spend on that project. Yeah, so you bring up Joplin. I, I, I donate money t- to Joplin through GitHub. And I quit using Evernote years ago. And what I did is I just took the money I was paying to Evernote and said, hey, I believe the developer's name's Laurent. I said, Laurent, I want to give you money for this. This is, this is awesome work. I love what you're doing. And I would like to think that the handful of people that are contributing money to, to uh, Joplin are is encouraging him to keep it going. I hope that's part of it. I really do. Other than just like, oh, I want to write this or I want to make this better because people are paying me to do it. Right. And then what one of the things that I, I find so irritating uh, about people saying I'm not going to pay for open source software, I know people who pay hundreds of dollars for games. Games that do, you know, yeah, it's entertainment. You know that it's that's important. I'm not saying it's not, but things that actually you derive value. You do your job on. You do things. Date. You know. You you make money off of it. Now that's a bridge too far. I I won't pay for that. Or you run your business on it. Let's go back to the Mongo example. Go to Linux. You run your business on Linux. Your applications written in 
using uh, your application's uh, database backend is MongoDB, using Elasticsearch to pull logs, do all this great stuff, and you're making hundreds, thousands, if not hundreds of millions of dollars off this off this awesome app you wrote. It's using this, but it's a bridge too far to ask you to pay the developers of MongoDB or whatever Linux distribution you're using. It's a bridge too far. I'm not saying this because I work in open source and I work for a company that makes money off open source. I'd say this as a concerned open source citizen. We can't have nice things because people decide it's a bridge too far to ask them to give a few bucks or a few hundred, you know, few, or in the case of like that previous example, few, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, but it's like 5% of what, <laughs> like that, it, it just boggles my mind. And, and maybe, maybe it goes back to another issue, a yeah, perception issue. Again, it goes back to perception. Is it because of the reputation of open source when I started my career? When I said to someone, if you, I, I'm betting my career on open source, they, they, they went, oh, how cute. <laughs> uh, your, uh, your hobby operating system. Oh, how nice. With meaning uh, Linux. It's, uh, oh, Linux, that, uh, the pretend Unix. <laughs> like, is it that still that perception? Like, oh, it's free software. It's done by hobbyists. It's not professional. But if it's so not professional, why is the world running on Linux? Why at the top web server, the two top web servers are not proprietary? They're open source, Nginx and the Apache web server. Like the world runs on open source. How can we, like, is that, that, that can't be the perception anymore. So like, what, what's the deal? It's definitely not reality. I mean, even when I entered the, the open source world, I, I think open source had already won. Uh, I, I think it's just taken people a while to, to figure that out. But there's still just this lingering, but I would say it's only a handful of percent of people that still believe that open source is for hobbyists only. But on the flip side, there's still just this lingering feeling people have when they look at something open source. You know, it's it's ironic that I, Audacity uh, was was in the news recently because Audacity was one of the first open source projects I'd ever encountered, and I used it long before I ever realized it was it was open source or what the what the uh, implication of that would would be. And so you use Audacity alongside a Mac OS app, and it's like, wow, this this open source thing's really garbage. I mean, look look at how the UI looks versus how pretty my Mac app looks. Granted, that was like 15 years ago. But I mean, even today, a lot of open source software is comparable, competitive, if not better than the proprietary alternatives. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, looks looks just as good, if not better. I, I don't know how we break that, that misconception. I don't know how we break this lingering notion that people have that open source is, is a is a hobby. So I mean where where do we go from here, Brandon? What would our community look like if we could fix this problem? Well if we could get you know just get out of our heads like to not pay for software, I think it'll go a long way. Just 
donating to projects you use, I think would go a long way. And I think it would make software better. It gives the developers encouragement. That's the way, way I feel. Let me call you on that one. Not really play devil's advocate because I, while I agree with you, this conversation has been had across podcasts, across Linux Fests, across communities for for years since long before long before this podcast, long before I was ever involved with open source. It's been a conversation. How do you monetize open source? And asking people to contribute or to donate only gets us so far. I mean, people have it. We've got to change the base conception. Uh, the the base preconception people have about open source, then they'll want to donate. Then they'll want to pay for their open source software. So here's the thing. I think it's the expectation that open source is not just about getting the code. It's about getting free stuff. It, it's not. I, I think it's more of an entitlement issue, not 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 a perception issue. Because the maybe because maybe it's not you know what it, it's it was when I started. Maybe it's more of like, this is free. It will always be free. You will take my free software out of my cold, dead hands. I'm not going to pay a dime for it, right? Look, I think like offering the code for free is great. Maybe put a pay, like maybe there, here's a couple of ways I think we could solve this. And like, it, if you want to contribute to a project, I like through, through money, maybe it, it's like, uh, I, I'm struggle. What I've been struggling with, like on the enterprise side, I feel like it's more or less solved in some ways. But some companies are still like, "Why should I pay for it? I can go download it for free." But it's more or less solved with Red Hat, with SUSE, with few other programs like at IBM and what Tidelift is doing. And I think it's more or less getting resolved. And really, quite frankly, enterprises are willing to pay for software. They've been paying for software for, well, since software was created. And they expect to have to pay for it, right? I think that's part of it. They expect to have to pay for it one way or another. Whereas consumer, I think this is more on the consumer side. And I still, but I think the consumer side impacts the enterprise side. This is why we're talking about it. And because the, the perception Again, it goes back to perception. Solving it, we need to have some sort of, I don't know if it's a marketplace, maybe what something what elementary is doing. Maybe it's a marketplace. Maybe it's something a little easier to consume than open collective. Uh, maybe we need a consumer level type thing of tide lift, like where you have a, con- but I just don't see see that being a profitable business. That's where I struggle. Yeah, I don't know how to solve it, but I think a good starting point is if you are personally willing to pay for Microsoft Office, but you snub your nose at using LibreOffice, but you but it's actually your preferred office suite, you need to take a look at the mirror <laughs> and go and and think about where you're putting your money versus what you're actually using day to day. That's the 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 switch that needs to flip that like I'm willing to pay a hundred dollars a year for Office 365 Microsoft 365 whatever it's being called these days I'm willing to pay that much but the free open source uh, Office suite that I actually prefer to use I just pay for the Microsoft license so I can uh, you know 
in case uh, a Word document I get looks silly. I If it's a, a bridge too far to pay for LibreOffice, but you're willing to pay $100 a year for that one-off document, I really want to ask, are you really putting your money in the right spot? And like, should you instead be giving that $100 a year to the Document Foundation to make that experience better? There's no way to enforce this, just like a lot of open source licenses. But I've, I have a pretty idealistic way of solving a lot of our issues. If you're using it for your home or for a not-for-profit or an organization like a charity or religious institution or something, use free software as in freedom and in beer. Open code, no cost. Use it as much as you want. But the moment, the second that you start a business or that you start turning a profit, then start paying for the software that you use to make your money. So I'm going to disagree there. (laughs) For home use, I mean, you derive value from it. You do. You derive value from it. If you use a note-taking application, tasks application, you derive value from it. You're getting something out of it. If you get something out of it, you should pay for it. You know, not-for-profit organizations. You know what? I, I'll, I'll go with you there. Maybe even, in some cases, education. I can see that it's not a perfect solution, but it's a better solution than what we have now, where open-source projects basically have to beg for donations or continue as they have been, where it's just a couple of hours here and there on the weekend. For me, it's mostly you. if you derive value from software, whether that's monetarily speaking or it just enhances your life, you, you pay for it. it. It's as simple as that. You know, if open source didn't exist and the free software movement never happened, you guess what you would be doing? You would be paying for software. You wouldn't, or doing it, or getting software illegally. You would be paying for it. I, I don't disagree. I mean, to be clear, I, I agree with you. I, in an ideal world, that's how things would be. But it's interesting being in my head sometimes because I, I have one half idealism and one half realism. And when those two butt heads, like on this particular subject, it, it makes for some interesting conversations that only I hear. But in an ideal world, yes. If you derived any value, whether it's for personal or professional use, you'd pay for something. But I think a more obtainable goal and maybe something that we can accomplish with the Open Collective or with Tidelift is to, if you make money off of a thing, you pay for a thing. Yes. At the very minimum, we need to at least get to that. At the very minimum. Let's make that a a goal for 2022. Yeah. The year people pay for their open source software. Uh, this, <laughs> this doesn't roll off the tongue like you're the Linux desktop. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll wordsmith that. <laughs> so our call to action, please, if you, if you depend on something, if you've, if you've gone down this path of de-Googleifying your life, if you've gone down this path of replacing Evernote with Joplin or, or you've replaced Spotify with, with Rhythmbox, Please take what you'd pay for that. If you pay $4.99 a month for a thing and you replace it with an open source alternative, take even half of that and donate it to the project that you're using. It'll make a huge difference. And if 100 people donate 
three ninety nine a month to a project. I mean, that's 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 a huge amount of money when you start adding it up. And then if you can contribute, if you can contribute, contribute. Like like I said, like take like if you've been using Evernote and you decide to switch to Joplin or something similar, you know, take that. I, what I think it's now what seven eight dollars a month for Evernote. You know, take what you were given to Evernote, give it to the developer of the new tool you're using. If you just canceled your Office 365 subscription, you know, donate it to the Document Foundation, or actually, or go pay for a paid version of Only Office or a paid version of Calibre Office, which is uh, the package version of LibreOffice. It's another way you can do that. I think LibreOffice, I think you actually have to be an enterprise. I think their model is B2B. Still applies. <laughs> I think that's where I want to you know, tie this off, get off my soapbox again. And again, thanks. Thanks for listening today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to sudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at sudo.show and on social media at sudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website at open-tech.net. Make sure to send all your hate mail to brandon at sudo.show. <laughs> And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. <laughs> Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. Hey.